thanks very much everyone for joining us today for our next webinar for consumer sector companies. Our focus today is on supply chains for the future, an essential topic for many companies. It's fabulous to have John Lang from McKinsey join us again. John was with us for a webinar back in April, which feels like a long time ago now. John with others from HSF spoke then on the impact of COVID on supply chains on consumer sector companies, including the over-demand, undemand routes to markets being closed and the changing nature of consumers. That wasn't long after the first COVID shutdown in Australia and mainland China had already had its shutdown and was starting to reopen. Hopefully in a number of markets, we're looking towards the future now, although still uncertain times for many markets uh, in APAC and beyond. John has kindly agreed to join us again today to share McKinsey's view on what are the learnings from COVID on supply chain issues and what makes a resilient supply chain for the future. We also have two of our HSF gang with us, Tim Stutt, our Australian ESG lead, who uh, just due to some tech issues is joining us by audio only, and Nanda Lau, a partner from our Shanghai team. And Nanda was one of the HSFers who spoke in our April webinar. Please um, send through any questions on the chat and um, we hope to have time to get to um, at least some, if not all of them at the end. Um, thanks again, everyone for joining and I'll hand over to John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Okay, so um, welcome uh, and thank you for joining uh, today's, uh, today's webinar. Um, today, I'll provide a perspective on the future of supply chain, uh, focusing particularly on resilience. Uh, and I'll give this as much of an APAC consumer flavour uh, as, as possible. Now, I'll provide a perspective, uh, some answers, some questions, uh, but perhaps a reason to pause for most of us to think through what is happening in our, in our supply chains. So I share a little bit of a story. So some of this might sound familiar to, to, to some of you. You know, our supply chains have served us well. They served us well pre-COVID and in some instances served us well early in COVID. You know, our consumer goods take lengthy, complex journeys uh, through global supply chain networks. Uh, we've been able to rationalise suppliers, increase complexity of our extended supply chain. We've enjoyed reliable supply. Uh, and consistency of delivery times through our transport and logistics networks. We've pushed our production capacities perhaps just that little bit higher than we, than we might otherwise have done to recover fixed costs, sometimes at the expense of supply chain agility. And we've been able to do this because our demand has been predictable. Our inventories have been optimised and our monthly, process, monthly business planning processes have worked. Um, mostly because we've had low volatility and our suppliers have had uh, cash reserves. However, this, what this has done is this has un, un, uh, uncovered some hidden vulnerabilities in our supply chain. It's made them less resilient. And COVID-19 uh, has highlighted some of those vulnerabilities. And I'll talk through vulnerabilities uh, in, in this presentation. And the reason why this is important uh, this is important because there is real value at stake. Um, there's, you know, COVID has accelerated trends that are already in motion. Uh, and we see that trade may shift 
to, to new locations. And it's our view, our perspective, that now is the time to act. We, we do this for COVID, but uh, you know, what, what is the next disease X or the next shock? And what, what do I mean by uh, supply chain vulnerability? Um, what, what, I, what, I, what I mean by this is, um, you know, resilient supply chains have low level of, of vulnerability. Uh, and resilience is, is the ability to be able to control those vulnerabilities. And I have some influence on uh, vulnerability but I have very little influence on some of the shocks, force majeure, macro political, malicious actors, and other, other things that might happen to my supply chain. But by controlling, by influencing what's happening with my supply chain in terms of vulnerability, I can reduce my uh, overall extended supply chain risk. So talking of shocks, I highlight some of the shocks that are um, often impossible to predict. Um, and they are becoming more frequent. So based on the expert interviews uh, that, we, we, that we've conducted, you know, there's an expectation that a duration of one to two weeks in our supply chain may occur every two years. And a disruption to our supply chains of up to two months or more may happen every, every, every five years. However, this is, this is somewhat of a simplistic view because it's not the same for everyone. And I've taken, I've taken a, a, a selection of some value chains here. Uh, and I've ranged this from uh, overall ex shock exposure for communication equipment being, be, being the highest to medical devices being the lowest and some uh, consumer-based goods uh, value chains in, in between. And if we look if we look across this, there's quite a range of disruptions that can occur within 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 supply chains. Um, and we, we, we've worked through and looked at this in terms of pandemic, uh, scale cyber attack, geophysical events like earthquakes and the like, heat stress. I call that heat stress only because you know how much is my supply chain exposed to. Um, outdoors, so where people are working outdoors, particularly in, um, in, in agriculture, for example. Flooding, uh, I could put flooding and fires and, and, then, and then trade disputes. So I'll, I'll use these supply chain groupings throughout the presentation just as a, a point of reference uh, so that you, you, you can see that there is a difference even within, within supply chains. Uh, but but within within the, the uh, you know the same geography there can be also within APAC there can also be um, you know differences. There are different types of shocks. There are different types of shock exposures, but there are also different types of geographic dynamics. So by way of example, so so by way of example, um, consumer shopping behaviour. Uh, has changed during uh, during during the COVID period. Reduction in shop trip frequency, increase in basket size, more attention to value, and nesting. I think most of us have been nesting in some form or fashion, uh, but then that opens a new type of competition. Digitization, last mile deliveries, 
uh, you know, nearshoring can it result in, uh, in, in uh, closer consumption, impact on freshness and expiry dates, and a virtual workforce. But there's no one size fits all. I mean, even within our region, China has uh, strong optimism, whereas Japan has uh, you know, less strong optimism. And that has changed over, 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 over time. So supply chains are in motion. Um, it, based on a survey that we did at, 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 as far back as December 19, um, supply chains were, were in motion then, and COVID has accelerated these shifts in supply chains. 70% of those that we surveyed expect to change their sourcing strategy. And I talk here about globalization, global sourcing strategy rather than regional, because ultimately all of our supply chains are globally linked. 32% moving operations closer uh, to end consumers. And those that will have you know, been, been across the Australian press, there's quite, quite a lot of discussion about local manufacturing and onshoring, if not nearshoring, and diversifying supply chains across countries. So when we, when we dig into this a little deeper, 93% um, of those that we surveyed uh, are planning to increase supply chain resilience. This was as early as, uh, or as far back as May uh, 2020. And 44% would increase resilience at the expense of short-term efficiency. Now, I don't necessarily think that we do, we need to increase, increasing resilience necessarily means to, uh, at, at, to be at the expense of short-term efficiency. The top, the top nine um, actions that these survey participants look to do to in, increase their resilience uh, are, are shown here. Dual sourcing, more inventory. Uh, you know, more inventory is an interesting one. We park that. Nearshoring of suppliers, regionalization, skew rationalization, higher safety stocks, turning up with more inventory. So, so what are we seeing in terms of some of the shifts? Um, we, we, uh, you know, across the categories, the value chains that we looked at before, and I did mention before, there's quite a lot of trade flow that could shift uh, to other countries in the next five years as, as organisations think of supply chain. Uh, this is likely to accelerate with, 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 with COVID, and we've seen some of that acceleration already occur. So where your supply chain is, is today, may not necessarily be where it is tomorrow. How your supply chain, your supply chain served you well today to get you to today, but it might not get you where you need to be tomorrow. So thinking through that uh, in terms of how I'm going to construct my supply chain will be, will, will be important, particularly from the, 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 the perspective of resilience. So thinking through what can you do um, now what actions can you take to, to address some of the vulnerabilities that you might have in your, your supply chain? No two supply chains are the same uh, within the same category, within the same industry, or even within the same country. The, the four actions that we, we, we think are, are, are most important for, to, for organisations to think through now uh, as a result of what's happened and perhaps as a result of in, in preparation for what could happen next. You know, that shock that might happen 
uh, in five years' time. That shock that might happen in two years' time. The four, the four things. First is improving end-to-end -end visibility of the risks in your value chain for your suppliers. So knowing what your suppliers are holding in inventory, knowing what your supplier's supplier and even your supplier's supplier supplier is holding in inventory can, can be important. The second thing is to complete regular stress testing uh, and reassessment of your supply chain. And this is important because our supply chains change with time. So regular stress testing and reassessment. The third thing is uh, to take targeted actions to reduce vulnerability and exposure to shocks. Now, it might sound like a, 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 a generalisation. Well, what I'm, what, my, what I'm suggesting here is working through your supply chain in a segmented way, considering the different types of shocks that might occur in each of the segments and creating specific targeted actions for each of those, uh, those segments. Because it's not true. As, as, as I've highlighted in earlier slides, it's not true that there's a one-size-fits-all approach to supply chains. And the fourth thing is elevating, uh, elevating this to ensure that resilience is on your CEO and even perhaps your board's agenda. And what are the questions that you might ask, uh, ask your, 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 your board? or your, your, your CEO. The questions that should be top of mind for you is, is supply chain resilience on your CEO's agenda? And if, if yes, do we have visibility of the vulnerabilities that exist within our supply chain? Is my organization thinking through the way we elevate and mitigate supply chain risks? And here we talk about things like end-to-end uh, -end visibility, we think about uh, digitization, uh, utilizing uh, industry 4.0 uh, levers. Is resilience a topic discussed at the higher levels? And are we make, using resilience, thinking about resilience when we make our trade-off decisions? And the fourth point is when making strategic decisions, do we consider these supply chain risks uh, in addition to just financial uh, implications? That's, uh, thank you, uh, and, and I welcome questions. Thanks very much, John. Um, we've now got Tim Stutt on um, ESG issues. Uh, normally, Tim is on video and has uh, fabulous photos and artwork in the background, so I'm hoping the lack of that will make us all very focused on his, uh, his words. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Kristen, and apologies for not being on screen. I can assure everyone that my hair does, in fact, look glorious today. And I, I am wearing a professional well-ironed shirt, but we will make do. Um, I am Australian lead for ESG, and this supply chain resiliency topic is very interesting from an ESG perspective. Often when clients are thinking about supply chain resiliency, they're focused on a lot of the issues that, that John has been talking about, diversification, globalisation, import-export. But actually, what's becoming increasingly clear is that 
ESG or environmental, social and governance issues are increasingly figuring in those discussions as well as supply chain risks of themselves. The reasons for this are twofold. The, the first and simplest is growing regulation in the area. Regulators and lawmakers are increasingly um, looking at the ESG impacts of businesses, including in relation to supply chains, uh, the downstream procurement impact of those businesses. In terms of the regulation, there's quite a lot on foot and proposed examples. You know, it's a real spectrum. At one end, you have the English Modern Slavery Act style, where it's disclosure only against um, suggested criteria. In Australia, we're sort of one step further along what I would sort of describe as a de facto diligence requirement in some respects, because while our regime um, for modern slavery focuses on disclosure, you actually need to identify and disclose in relation to your human rights or, or modern slavery risks. And that creates this, um, this issue whereby once you have that information, it's really incumbent on the board and management to address it and to mitigate those risks. So while there's not a formal diligence requirement, actually we wind up with something which is a bit like a de facto diligence requirement. The next one along is sort of the French vigilance law model where there is a recognised diligence requirement and there's a number of countries like Germany and Switzerland looking at adopting that approach. And then there's sort of a new wave of regulation um, being the EU Commission's proposed ESG due diligence laws which they announced earlier this year. The EU proposal would see mandatory due diligence requirements for both EU businesses and businesses carrying on um, or, or, or companies carrying on business in the EU. The concept is sort of similar to the French vigilance laws, but a bit broader in its clear acknowledgement of environmental and governance risks, as well as human rights risks as well. Given that the EU is a standard setter for ESG and um, a lot of different types of regulation. Um, the exposure draft they've released on this is probably quite instructive for the direction we may be heading. And what it includes is things like a requirement to identify and assess ESG risks, a requirement to disclose whether you contribute to them uh, a published due diligence strategy developed following consultation with stakeholders um, on how you understand, prioritise and mitigate those risks, an alignment of your contracts, policies um, and codes with, the, with that strategy. Um, there's also penalties for failure to comply as well. So that's the direction the regulation is heading. The second driver is really community expectations. And we've seen a lot of examples of that. A great one is Boohoo, which um, as a result of labor practice issues, which were reported in relation to its Leicester factories, had a 50% share price drop and a billion dollars knocked off its market cap. It's been able to reclaim that, some of, some of that through a you know, very public investigation process. But actually where we've come to, is that uh, companies really are, particularly in retail and, and the consumer sector, are starting to think about ESG <laughs> issues, sorry, someone knocking at my door, uh, in the same way that financial services sector companies think about anti-money laundering 
as those reputational issues which can really have an outsized impact on the business. And for that reason, we are seeing them figure more in that risk and resiliency analysis that John has been talking about. I might leave it there. So given that we're running low on time, thanks, Kristen. Thanks so much, Tim. That's really useful and, and an increasing area for particularly Australian corporates to be aware of. A, a lot in other jurisdictions have had some of this regulation a longer period of time. Um, Nanda, thank you for joining us again. Uh, we work with Nanda regularly on um, and client issues across APAC, and it's always lovely to have you join. Um, so thank you. Um, we'll hand over to Nanda now on supply chain issues um, from a China perspective. Thanks, Nanda. Thanks, Kristen. Um, um, today's discussion will focus on two things, um, the COVID and also the recent geopolitical tension between China and a number of the other countries. So first of all, I would like to share with you um, a few trends that we are seeing on the ground uh, with respect to how supply chains in China have been responding to COVID-19. Um, First of all, automation, digitalization, innovation, I think it's a global phenomenon. I don't need to say too much about this, but just in China, we are seeing companies embracing it. And the second thing is diversification and regionalization. John has mentioned that as a trend, uh, we are also seeing companies are reconsidering their existing supply chain strategies in China uh, to avoid over-reliance on a particular supplier or geography. Um, interestingly, there are some myths about um, supply chain is shifting out of China completely because of uh, diversification and regionalization trends. Uh, in the ground uh, here in China, we are not seeing massive shifting of supply chain out of China. Uh, I think currently it is fair to say that um, there is still no similar scale substitute for China's role in the global supply chain because over the years, China has established a reliable ecosystem and infrastructure in supply chains. However, uh, companies in certain industries do choose to move their supply chains out of China. For example, textile, electronics, toys, industries, they have been moving um, to Southeast Asia and other low cost countries. But I think the forces behind the shift have already exist even before COVID-19. Um, the third trend we're seeing is change of business models. Um, many companies are working on how to adapt to the change of new business models, for example, new uh, e-commerce, et cetera, in post-COVID world. Uh, and they are redesigning their supply chain strategies uh, to meet new customer demands and market needs. And the fourth one is quite China-specific. Um, we're seeing more investment in domestic infrastructure in China. Um, um, to maintain its status as a global supply hub, uh, we are seeing that further capital investment are made in logistic infrastructure by both public and private sectors in China. For example, Chinese government has issued a lot of policies to encourage investment in development of infrastructure to support its industries and supply chains, particularly the new infrastructure like construction of 5G and industrial internet. China is also speeding up its plans to focus on value-added manufacturing process and automated factories and trying to shift out low-end operations in order to move up um, the value chain. Um, the second uh, uh, issue that I would like to discuss with you today is about uh, the geopolitical tensions and how it has influenced supply chains, not just in China, but globally. Um, political risk is playing a greater share in the risk portfolio of supply chain management. 
and escalating political um, tension between China and a number of other countries like US, Australia, have put a lot of stress on supply chains. And many people here think that its impact is even more disruptive than what COVID-19 has caused. For example, the ongoing uh, trade war and the more recent tech war between US and China have a significant negative impact on supply chain and businesses. Increased tariff, export control, barriers to access to technology, restrictions on import of raw materials like US recent um, order on Xinjiang, the entity list ban on Huawei or other telecom equipment uh, provider, just to name a few. Um, and look at also the Australia-China relationship um, and its um, the recent tensions, how its impact on, on supply chain and, and businesses. Um, lots of recent examples like the tariff on the Australian barley anti-dumping investigation into the um, Australian wine imports and official restrictions on coal import. All these events or tensions means lots of disruptions or potential disruptions in sourcing parts, components and raw materials technologies across countries and then increased costs and, and, and also compliance capacity. And more importantly, it would mean loss of business and um, customers in a particular country. Just to wrap up, uh, uh, given the time constraint, uh, I think COVID-19 and political tensions are only part of the risk factors which affect supply chain. John's have a very good diagram as the shock factors. Uh, and, and companies should do a, a comprehensive supply chain investigation to understand where the weakest link in the supply chain is and how to improve. And I think from positive side, uh, this is also a good opportunity to make reflections uh, on the crisis management and business continuity plans and then incorporate lessons learned from COVID-19 and these geopolitical events. This can help respond to other bad swan events, which will become more common uh, in this new world. Uh, and the pandemic at the, and, and the geopolitical tension highlight uh, the legal and compliance complexity when managing supply chain risk. It is important to keep up with the latest legislative developments and policies across the jurisdictions where your suppliers and customers are based. And finally, if you are considering changing your supply chain strategy, like uh, from single source uh, to diversification or from uh, globalization to regionalization, uh, I think one should bear in mind the benefits against the cost and risk and complication concerned. As John mentioned, there's no one size fits all. And ultimate objective is to make the supply chain more resilient and sustainable. And companies will have to take a holistic view and consider the, your overall group strategy and your global supply chain arrangement and the market needs. So thanks, Kristin. I hand it over back to you. Thanks so much. Um, I, we will only have one question just given the timing and it, it's a really interesting question and, and it probably needs you know, a good half an hour, but we'll give John 30 seconds. Um, that many supply chains have focused on increasing inventories to improve resilience. Does that work? Is it a good idea? Is more needed? Go. Sorry, interesting question. So thank you. Um, Interesting that inventory will result in a in a only a one-time uh, benefit but a recurring cost. And considerations given uh, the questions that we posed earlier in this in, in this is how much additional inventory should I hold? Is it two weeks? Is it two months? Am I holding for a two two-year or five-year event? How, uh, what type of shock am I covering? 
uh, you know, as we said, one size doesn't fit all. Am I, am I covering shock across all my suppliers, some of my suppliers, my finished goods, my factories? Um, and are there any freshness or obsolescence risks or risks of write-offs is another thing that I'd be thinking through. So I think the answer to this is involves question segmentation, uh, inputs in terms of your, your supply, and working through those items of end-to-end -end transparency, stress test, uh, regular assessment of your supply chain risks, and, and potentially potentially nearshoring. And to Nandu's point, nearshoring, the reason why we offshore, we offshore for good reason. Uh, question is, we, we need to think through those when we, when we consider if we're going to nearshore. Well done, thank you. Um, thanks all so much for joining us. Thanks so much to our speakers, particularly John from McKinsey. Thank you, Nanda. Thank you, Tim. A recording will be up um, on our website next week, and there's also a recording from last month's McKinsey HSF seminar on the future of consumer. Thanks all. Have a great day. Bye.